The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. For centuries, we have distinguished between our experience and the world, between the subjective and the objective, between consciousness and material reality. Might the very distinction between subject and object, conscious experience and the world, be a mistake? Or could we formulate a new conceptual framework that might enable us to escape the puzzle? To help us discuss the relationship between experience and reality, we're joined remotely by four leading thinkers, author and philosopher Annika Harris, post-postmodern philosopher Hilary Lawson, computer scientist Bernardo Castrop, and philosopher Reza Negarastani. Then you face that situation in, in which my inner life has to be exhaustively describable by a list of numbers. And I know for a fact that it isn't because my inner life is constituted of qualities, not only quantities. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, Mary Jane Rubenstein. So we're just going to hop right in, and I will start by asking Bernardo Castrop, hello, um, for four minutes, could you let us know what you think about the following? Might the very distinction between subject and object, conscious experience and the world, be the mistake? Bernardo, please. I'm having the honor to start, um, so let me do it. Uh, do my best. It's a very loaded question. Even the two ways in which, in which you ask the question um, have two different meanings, right? I think there is a sense in which the distinction between self and world is an empirical fact that is undeniable. So in what sense is that the case? Well, I have some degree of control over the imagery in my imagination, but I can't change the world by just imagining it to be different. Otherwise, it would be different right now, I promise you. Um, so there is a sense in which that distinction uh, is undeniable. It's an empirical datum uh, of existence. And then you can go down the question, you know, is this, metaphysically speaking, a fundamental distinction or is this an illusion? We can pursue those paths, but I don't think the core of the problem is whether there is a subject separate from, a, from an object. I think the core of the problem are the metaphysical assumptions we make when we talk about a subject, when we talk about a object. What do we mean by these words? Um, to, to name two examples, um, a materialist would deny the distinction. And I would agree with the materialist there. I don't think there is any fundamental distinction between subject and object. But a materialist would make that assumption that uh, the objects, the world out there, 
are exhaustively describable through quantities. In other words, if you come up with the right list of numbers, then you say everything there is to be said about the object. And then, because they don't distinguish the subject from the object, the same has to apply to the subject. So then you face that situation in, in which my inner life has to be exhaustively describable by a list of numbers. And I know for a fact that it isn't, because my inner life is constituted of qualities, not only quantities. Now, a panpsychist could say, well, I will make a, 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 a different assumption. I will say that there are fundamental boundaries between the subjectivity inside and the objectivity outside. And I will say that those boundaries are the boundaries of the primary elements of the material world, whatever they might be. So you're basically saying, you're basically acknowledging the distinction between object and subject at a fundamental level. But then you run into another problem because of one's metaphysical assumptions. And that is, well, if I have good reason to think I am fundamentally separate from the world out there, then by the same token, the left hemisphere of my brain is fundamentally separate from the right. Actually, by the same token, one neuron is fundamentally separate from the next neuron, one atom from the next, one subatomic particle from the next. And then you have to explain why our inner lives feel unitary, because that's how we experience it, uh, our inner lives. So to summarize and conclude my answer, I don't think the core of the problem is the question, uh, is the subject distinct from the object? Because there is a sense in which it obvi obviously is, and fundamentally, it probably is not. But the problem is the metaphysical assumptions we make when we talk about these things. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Bernardo. Reza, let's turn to you. Sure. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I, I would like to bastardize this question a little bit more. Uh, I would say that um, I think that this whole uh, discussion about consciousness um, uh, at this point in the history of philosophy is rather misguided. Uh, why? Uh, you know, uh, we, we see, we look at the philosophy of mind, the philosophers of mind are giving us different perspective onto uh, the problem of consciousness. Um, but look like, like uh, there are elements or parts, uh, fragmented perspectives onto uh, what you might call to be an integrated uh, phenomenon but precisely because they don't understand what it means to have an integrated phenomenon to begin with, uh, a la consciousness, every perspective that they have given us so far has been distorting the problem even more. Essentially, the, the question of consciousness at this point in philosophy of mind has devolved into this very fact that they try to get out of the hole that they have themselves digged for so many years by digging a deeper hole for themselves. And this is this, I would say that um, for me is a conceptual problem. Conceptual problem, not in a Kantian sense, but I would say in a, in a Carnapian sense, in the Carnapian sense of conceptual engineering. I'm not talking about conceptual analysis, meaning that, look, we can actually replace the, 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 uh, the concept of consciousness with more refined concepts. No, that's not what I'm trying to say. Analyzing the uh, concept of consciousness to kind of a subclass of uh, family uh, concepts. 
Um, what I am uh, basically uh, trying to say is that um, we can allow a more mature car app uh, think about this, that the word, the concept of consciousness is the root of the problems that we are dealing with. And these are rather pseudo problems at this point, not real problems. The way to go forward uh, is to uh, allow Carnap conceptual engineering paradigm to replace the explicandum, namely inexact concepts, with explicatum, namely concepts uh, which are uh, which which can be clarified according to the purpose which we are using them for. Uh, so conceptual engineering in that sense requires uh, one assessments of the current concepts and classificatory systems we are using. Two. Um, uh, understanding of how they are actually working with regard to the relevant concept, uh, the, the relevant context of their use, and ultimately uh, reflection uh, upon the purpose uh, for which we are using them for, and how we can improve that. Right, so. Uh, I would say that explication, namely conceptual engineering, is uh, at this point is necessary because it would be just we are basically reiterating the same old stuff for for the times to come, and this is the problem here. Uh, Reza, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you here for right now, and you're gonna get right back into this when sure, we get sure, into Sure, sure, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Thank you so much, Annika. Tell us, please. Um, from your perspective, might it be the case that the distinction between subject and object, conscious experience, and the world is itself the mistake? Um, I have so many questions for Reza, but <laughs> um, I'll, I'll begin. Yeah, so, so let me just um, briefly say, I guess, that I don't think that in reality, that is at a fundamental level, there is this subject-object dichotomy. Um, I think the notion of subject comes directly out of the illusion of self, which is created by the brain. Um, and I think the experience of self comes largely out of the function of memory, although there are many different types of brain processing at play that I think contribute to this illusion. Um, and so I think we tend to not see conscious experiences for what they are at a very basic level, um, which I would say is, is qualia or, or felt experience um, that appear in the universe rather than qualia that appear to a subject in the universe, which I think is an additional um, and, and false step and way of, of seeing things. Um, so the combination of qualia through memory and across time creates this illusion that there's a solid self moving through time that again, certain conscious experiences are appearing too. But I think that's part of the illusion and that this illusion contaminates a lot if not most of our thinking about consciousness. Um, so in contemplating theories that place consciousness at a fundamental level, which is something I'm very open to and interested in, um, I consider it to be a red flag when I see the use of subject um, or the concept of, of subject embedded in the theory. Um, and that if we're going to consider consciousness as fundamental, I, th I think we need to look at, at qualia or felt experience um, more like 
bubbles in a pot of boiling water, um, where consciousness itself is pervasive. So consciousness is the water in that analogy. Um, so I just think it's, it's important to question how we're thinking about or using concepts like subject and self um, and privacy is, is another term that comes up in this context. Um, and to just keep a close eye on how we're using these concepts or how they're guiding um, or rather misguiding our thinking. Thank you so much. And finally, Hilary Lawson. Thank you. Well, it seems to me there are many layers to this puzzle. And I'd just like to begin with just a very, very simplistic historical picture. And then I'll say something about what, what my thoughts are. So in an overall context, subject and object has been central to Western thought since Descartes, certainly. And, and um, uh, the question is, what's the relationship? What's the relationship between them? And the the obvious, uh, there are three obvious uh, explanations. One of which they're two separate things, and there's no real relationship between them. That's a dualist uh, perspective, Cartesian perspective. There's the perspective that uh, all is subjectivity. There is only subjectivity, and the objective world is in some sense an illusion. I think this is a position that Bernardo uh, uh, takes up in some form. It was very popular in the 18th and 19th centuries, rather un less fashionable than the 20th. And the alternative is that it's all objective. And, and that alternative is all objective. It's a very common uh, view. It's a very contemporary sort of standard scientific uh, picture of the world. Um, and the problem within that framework that everything is objective is how do you account for experience? And hence the hard problem of consciousness within that perspective. But there's only a hard problem of consciousness within that materialist, scientific, realist story. There isn't a hard problem of consciousness for, for say, Bernardo's position, which obviously starts off with consciousness. Now, so, so that's a historical framework. Now, that dominated until the 20th century, philosophically speaking. And in the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century, it was largely replaced in philosophical circles with the question of the relationship between language and the world, which is related, but is a, is a different way of framing it. And it, it was replaced because the question of the relationship between language and the world seemed to be more prior, that the words subject and object are words in language. And if we're going to try and understand what is really going on here, we've got to have an account of how they relate to the world. And most of those people who are involved in that project imagine that there might be a theory which would link uh, language directly to the world. We'd have an idea of how it referred to the world. Now, it's my view that, that that project largely failed, that there hasn't been such a realist theory. And I would argue that our theories and language do not describe the world. They don't somehow reach through and, and point to things in reality. They are ways of holding reality. Uh, they are, as it were, uh, they, uh, language in our theories say, hold the world like this, operate like this. And if you operate like this, you might be able to achieve things that you can't achieve uh, otherwise. But the words subject and object are just particular to this particular language, it's language English, um, uh, at a particular time, in a particular culture of a particular species on a particular planet. And the idea that these words are somehow sort of pointed to some ultimate stuff out there seems to me to be entirely implausible. Um, so uh, what, what subject and object are, are, are doing is they don't refer to some ultimate stuff out there. 
or to some essential uh, metaphysical characteristics. And, and they're not, therefore, you know, like ultimate true descriptions. They're a way of holding the world. And, of course, there are problems with the different options we've seen in these ways of holding the world. Now, the account that I've just given you in terms of language and our theories as being ways of holding, as it were, the openness of, of the world, what I would call closures, has an advantage, which is that it is able to give an account, and I can't possibly do, provide the detail of this in, in the many minutes or so I've got here, it is able to give an account of how sensation and thought, and indeed experience, are a product of this process of closure, the holding of the world as something. And okay, great. Actually, Hillary, I'm going to stop you right there so that we can head into it because we're going to go right back to you um, with our first question. And this will allow us to get um, other folks reacting um, to your position, which is delightful. Okay, so let's just stop for a second. It seems to me that uh, the four of our speakers agree that there is no fundamental reality to these terms, so that they, they are in some sense under question. Um, but some of you seem uh, to be all right using them, at least provisionally, and others seem to think that the terms are just a, a mess. Um, so the, the question that I'd like to ask first of each of you, we'll start with Hillary, um, and then the rest of you can uh, will be able to jump in and speak with and to each other. Um, the question is this, uh, given its messiness, is the distinction between subject and object still necessary? And so then I guess the question is, we've got the distinction, we've got the language, so we might be able to separate those. But is the distinction between subject and ne object necessary, or could we imagine an alternative? Is it like a necessary evil or is there something else we can use? And if so, what is that thing? Uh, Hillary, go for it, please. I don't think there's anything necessary about that particular way of uh, dividing up the world. We, the, as I say, language in the world would be another way of doing it. Heidegger would have described it in terms of being and Dasein. Um, I've given you an account in terms of openness and closure. There are different ways of trying to hold what it is to, to be uh, alive. And I don't think there's anything necessary about the subject-object way of describing things. But there isn't anything necessary about any one of them. The question is, what framework uh, is going to be most effective and enable us to do things and, and intervene and produce solutions uh, of, the, of the different ones that we have available? It's just one additional puzzle, though, I think, which is that maybe in the way that I've described these alternatives, they are all... They're all dualisms of a, foot, a sort. And we might be tempted to imagine there's something about the character of experience. This is a Kantian point. There is a something about the character of experience that in order to be experienced at all, it has to be an experience of something, you know, that it's just experience. And that that dualism is somehow essential. And all I would say to that is that well, we might think that, but let's not imagine that we've somehow hopped outside of language and we can say how things ultimately are. There's, there's, uh, that, it, that somehow strains the limits of, of what, we can, what, we, what we can say. And, and we're at risk of imagining that our language can become metaphysics. As it were. That's great. Annika, please do jump in. Um, yeah, I was just going to clarify that um, I think the illusion of self um, 
it is a true illusion. I mean, the, so so in in one sense, that that word is is pointing to an experience that we have. Um, that I I think you know, in terms of all of this, in terms of the the illusion itself, and also the use of terms like subject and object are obviously useful in our everyday lives. Um, it is how the human mind um, moves through the world. But um, in terms of it being useful for talking about um, the more fundamental nature of reality. Um, I mean, the truth is that, that even the human mind can still be conscious without an experience of self. Um, and I think when we talk about subject, um, and, and maybe we want to get into the details here, but to me, whenever I hear someone using the word subject, it's kind of a very, very basic, kind of the most basic level or version of what our experience of self is. Um, and so it's possible, you know, many many people who've practiced meditation for, for many years, um, people under the influence of psychedelic drugs can, can really um, drop through, drop, drop this illusion of self um, and have a conscious experience that is not a dualistic one. Um, whether that is giving us correct information about the fundamental nature of reality or not, uh, you know, I, I don't know, but the point is that there is clearly an illusion that takes place that can drop away. And if that illusion is informing our, the way we think about consciousness itself, um, I think that that's a problem and, and there's something we need to um, be aware of and weed out of any description of the fundamental nature of reality. I mean, it's, it's a place where we can see that something that we know is an illusion is actually getting into getting into our scientific explanation of the world um, in, in a way that seems uh, not productive to me. Bernardo, would you hop in here um, on the self as illusion um, and, and the possibility of doing away with this distinction through one or another kind of experiences? Is, is this the right way to think about, about these categories? It comes down to how we use the words, right? Um, uh, one could argue that there cannot be qualia, there cannot be experience without an experiencer. The qualia is to the subject who experiences, and, and I would even agree with that, but that doesn't mean that there is an individual experiencer, an individual subject that remains stable from birth to death and then disappears. That There I would agree completely uh, with uh, Annika, our, our idea of a personal individual self is a narrative constructed with words and it, it's ultimately an illusion that we end up believing in. But then if we go further than that and say, well, there is no subject, period, then a lot of people would disagree because their intuitive understanding of the subject is the experiencer. And if you grant that there is experience, then I would say it, this entails the existence of an experiencer. As Why? Gail, Gail, Galen Strawson once wrote that not even a sensible Buddhist would agree with that. I, I would say that the why this is so, it's the, what the words mean. Um, if there is an experience, something, there is some entity that has the experience, that undergoes the experience. Um, I don't think it is coherent to talk about the experience or qualia without that to which the qualia are given. This is definitely a fundamental disagreement. I, I would just say one quick thing, um, which is that we can talk about qualia itself as being private. Qualia itself. Um, I, I don't. I, to me, it's an additional piece to talk about 
some external thing that the experience is appearing to. I'm not... It's not external. I, I didn't say it's external. I said it's entailed by the experience. So the fact that there is experience entails that there is an experiencer. But, but, I, don't see, but I don't see why. I, think, I mean, I think, I think that is very closely tied to our human intuition because that, that is so close to the experience we have. But it, it doesn't, there, it, you could describe a universe where an experience of blue arises, an experience of pressure arises, an experience, and, there, and, and those are, are simply experiences arising. When you say to the experiencer, you're, you're by definition adding something. It, it's a linguistic um, implication of how I, we use the word. Okay, so maybe we uh, agree, and it's just a, it's just a. Uh, it's just. It might be. We, it might be. Let's let Reza jump in here for for a second yeah. um, to see if, if there's a, Look, another angle that we. My can apologies on. for for to be uh, the the enemy of the public. Uh, I actually disagree with all of you. I <laughs> I think that first of all. Uh, Anaka um, is confusing self, phenomenal selfhood with subjectivity, with rational subjectivity. That is the, like the, the canonical sin of philosophy. If you cannot tell the difference between phenomenal selfhood, a la Metzinger, which is a really fantastic thesis, Metzinger makes sure that self, phenomenal selfhood is an illusion. But then going on and basically confusing this with rational subjectivity, namely rational self-consciousness, the understanding of perception, action, uh, and inference altogether combined, uh, unity of thoughts and action, unity of theory and practice. That's, that's a sin. That's a philosophical sin. That's, you are essentially doing the same thing again that we, I was basically uh, uh, warning against uh, 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 confusing explicandum with explicatum. Uh, so that's one. Rational subjectivity can, in fact, be built on top of the very idea that selfhood, phenomenal selfhood, is an illusion. Let's agree on this. We can still have an account of rational subjectivity on top of neuroscientific accounts of the illusion of phenomenal selfhood, number one. Then uh, second, uh, the idea of subject and object uh, is not about uh, holding the world um, in, in a certain kind of subjective way. Look, the whole idea of having a world is a transcendental question. You cannot sidestep it. Uh, most important thing in Kant and Hegel or the entire German idealist and 21st century, we see that to have a world is not a given. You need to have a certain kind of world involving abilities to have a world before you actually go and talk about subject and object. And to think that the world is given to you already, and or, or basically the uh, the division between subject and object simply uh, boils down to the idea of me versus the world confronting me as such. That's just ridiculous. It's pre-critical philosophy par excellence. 
Fabulous. All right. So Hillary, let's loop back around to you. Uh, let's let's make sure that Hillary, you get to answer answer the question. Uh, is there something more fundamental than holding and closure? And uh, and Annika, I'd like also right right afterwards you to respond to the question of uh, Are you confused um, <laughs> about the nature of selfhood and the subject? Uh, Hillary, go for it. I just say I, I feel I've fallen back in in this conversation into the. 1980 19th, 19th centuries, and we, we've somehow forgotten the linguistic term. I, I don't think we can argue over the metaphysics as if uh, our words simply pointing to a reality out there, as if the answer might be there is only the subject, or there is only the object, or that some, some panpsychic solution might be, might, might be outcome. All of those are trying to reach beyond language to say what the essential nature of the world is like. And I don't think we can do that. What we can do instead is offer models of the world, which I, I would call closures. You can offer a model of the world and say, operate like this. And then we can explore the value and strengths of these different models. And there are values of a purely objective frame. It's a very effective frame for much of science. Um, there are values of the subjective account as well. It's very important in a legalistic context. You know, how do we, how do we assign blame? How do we assign responsibility? And getting rid of the subject is fundamentally problematic in those areas. And I don't think we have, as in a sense, to, uh, to choose between us as if one of them is right. That's not what language is. It's not like it's true or false. It's a way of intervening in the world. And, and we've got to judge between these different accounts what, which ones are, uh, enable us to intervene better and can, of course, we're always trying to be, build a bigger closure, can somehow make them simpler and get rid of these different oppositions. So I'd like to get away from the idea that any one of us around this uh, metaphorical table is, is going to provide the right answer. What we're offering is different ways of holding what it is to be human. Um, Annika, could you, could you talk briefly about the distinction between uh, the phenomenological uh, self and, and the subject of consciousness? Yeah, well, first, I just want to reiterate that I think there are different, <clears throat> excuse me, there are different levels of conversation. So um, I think it's extremely valuable for human psychology, <clears throat> excuse me, for our court systems, for, you know, <laughs> all kinds of everyday life. But that is not an area where I would suggest that we lose the notion of, of self or subject. Um, but it, in terms of the work that I'm focused on um, and in terms of my interest in um, interpretations of quantum mechanics and whether there is a place for consciousness at a more fundamental level. Um, and in terms of what our, our experience actually is, um, you know, I would, I would say, I would say the same thing back to Reza, which is that, and that is my, my initial point is that um, I think most people are, are confused um, and that for most people, unless they've had the experience of seeing through the illusion of self, um, it, it's almost an impossible thing to imagine. It's such a strong illusion that um, even I, after many years of practicing meditation and, and many experiences of, of being in a state of, of not um, feeling that I am an experiencer or that there is an experiencer and, and the conclusion that I've come to that that, that truly is an additional um, 
additional step that gets put in that is almost impossible to not place there unless this illusion of self has been broken through. But my, my issue is that because um, not only can I, can I see it for myself, but the, the neuroscience um, really backs this up. And I think the, the further along neuroscience gets, the more we'll be faced with, with this reality. And it's part of the reason why I think it's important for us to talk about, um, because I do think that many people not only find it counterintuitive, they find it destabilizing um, to think in these terms. And, and I think one, it's important um, for us to be kind of psychologically prepared for what we are going to discover about the nature of the human mind and, and just the nature of our own you know, human consciousness separate from what's going on at the fundamental level. Um, but I also actually think um, this kind of moves on to a separate point, but that, that it actually is um, ultimately psychologically incredibly positive and transformative to see through the, this illusion and um, to notice that the, the existence of an observer or um, a subject is, is in fact an addition, even to our own human experience. Great. So this is this takes us exactly where we need to go next, which is to say, and Reza, we're going to head to you first for this for the second question, the second prompt, um, which is precisely the question of, of neuroscientific developments and AI, um, which is to say, are um, current advancements and current developments in these fields, in AI, in neuroscience, going to help us understand better um, whatever it is we are trying to understand when we have traditionally used these terms of subject and object. Um, is it going to get to something like what Annika is talking about with meditative experience, or is, is it heading in a different direction? Reza, from your perspective, what's going on? Right. Uh, okay, I, w I would say that I'm, uh, uh, I, I try to be, uh, you know, the, um, the most cynical person on the block, but I actually would say in this very case that, yes, I think that this research uh, forms of research or modes of research are going to help us. This is an outside view of what it means to be human. What is AI other than an outside view of what it means to be human? or AGI for that matter, artificial general intelligence. But that usually is being understood, uh, 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 Bernardo knows this, that in certain kind of circle, uh, singularity cults and the stuff is being misinterpreted. But for us engineers and philosophers, for us, this is a, a very a specific kind sort of problem. Um, look, um, obviously um, my, my uh, way of thinking about this, I, I think of consciousness, as I mentioned, as an explicandum. Once we explicate it, we can understand it as a complex system, as an integrated information processing of the broadest possible sense, right? Multi-level, multi-scale, nested hierarchy, so on and so forth, really a complex system. So, how are we going to actually talk about this phenomenon? Obviously, we are not going, we can't use the ordinary, uh, basically uh, trivial vocabularies that philosophy of mind has been using it for the past 50, 60 years. We have to use uh, the vocabularies of com uh, contemporary neuroscience, theoretical computer science, and of course, philosophy and biology and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, my idea is simple as that. 
I think that um, consciousness is a matter of functional integration. Essentially, what we are dealing with is a phenomenon that is only a phenomenon by virtue of integrating completely different functions at different levels, interlevels, and intralevels. And hence, uh, basically, what we are talking about is understanding what integration of different faculties allow Kant means for something to be a subject, a rational subject, to be an agent, to have certain kind of world involving capacities. Right, Bernardo, would you hop in here um, on the issue of consciousness as a matter of functional integration? Does that sound does that sound right to you? Does that sound helpful? Not at all. What? Not at all. What strikes me in this conversation is the ability of philosophers to complicate things almost infinitely with semantically dubious conceptualizations and words. Um, and, and anyway, do I think um, AI? Even general artificial intelligence will help us figure out human consciousness. Absolutely not. Uh, why? Because how not? not? How not? <laughs> Unless that you are already there. thinking that there. there is something mysterious about consciousness and mysterianism. There's approach. nothing mysterious about consciousness. It's the so one what is it exactly that doesn't thing. allow us for naturalization and rationalization of consciousness? I'll, I'll try to answer your question. I was trying to answer this already. Um, when it, when it comes to AI and consciousness... No, a, not AI or AGI, because these are two different kind of vocabularies. Let's, let's, when it let's comes, let Bernardo When it comes to yeah. AI, artificial intelligence, artificial general intelligence, whatever you want to, to call it, we conflate it immediately with artificial sentience. And they are not the same thing. One can be objectively measured and the other can only be known from a first-person perspective. Now, when it comes to AI, human beings have this unique uh, uh, ability to fail to understand when we are talking about an abstraction as opposed to, to the concrete phenomenon. We don't make this mistake in any other instance. I can simulate kidney function on my computer down to the molecular level and nobody will expect my computer to urinate on my desk because we know that the simulation is not the phenomenon. It's an isomorphic simulation. It's not the phenomenon itself. But when it comes to consciousness, we lose this, this, this sense of plausibility. We think that a simulation of consciousness in a completely different substrate, namely silicon uh, uh, chips, which I spent 25 years of my life designing and building, we think that if we simulate intelligence on a silicon chip on, on, uh, instead of on a carbon-based brain, uh, that the simulation is the phenomenon. It's as if you expected a computer to pee on my desk because it simulated kidney function down to the molecular level. So do I think AI will help us understand you know, the riddle of consciousness, consciousness and existence? No, it's a completely different substrate. It's many layers of abstraction removed from the actual thing. I don't think it will help, help us at all. Can neuroscience help us? Yes because now we are talking about the same substrate. And the more we understand the correlations between patterns of brain activity or lack thereof, and, and experience as introspectively accessed, or maybe not even that, because now we are talking about the no report paradigms in neuroscience, which go beyond what subjects can actually introspect into and report. 
I think that stands a good chance at least of removing some options from the table that contradict the evidence, not AI. And, and you're hearing this from somebody who has spent years working on AI. So I'm not uninformed. I may not be the best AI re researcher in the world. I'm certainly not, but I'm not uninformed when I say this. Um, let's take an old uh, labor question and, and throw it to Hillary. Hillary, which side are you on here? Um, do you think that it is the case that AI is going to help us understand uh, the riddle of consciousness and that it's simulatable, or do you think that we're dealing with two different substrata and that it, it's, it, it's not going to help? Well, as I have tried to indicate, I think I differ from the other panelists in that I'm not a realist. I don't think science is gradually uncovering the ultimate truth of the world. So I don't think that somehow we're going to get to the bottom and say, oh, we cracked consciousness, we, we, we know the answer. I think what science does, it provides us with models by which to intervene, and we can refine those based on how they operate. Now, as far as AI is concerned, I think the sort of account that I've given in terms of how language and theory works, this, this account of closure, is indeed the one that is working in the context of AI. I think neural networks and machine learning do not work on the basis as that people started out with AI of trying to get computers to see how things ultimately are out there in the world. That doesn't work. What works is allowing the machine to make a distinction and then within that distinction to then apply it to other bits of data and then to build bigger and bigger accounts which then can be applied. So that is, I would argue, the framework that I've been describing. And in that sense, I think AI is helpful insofar as it demonstrates the, the, the advantage of the account that I've given in terms of closure and openness. But I'm not wanting to say this is the truth either. It's a way of holding it which has got certain advantages in certain areas and, and has some disadvantages in other areas. One fundamental disadvantage is it doesn't enable me to say this is how it ultimately is. And for all of those people uh, listening uh, who want an answer, they're going to find this, you know, disappointing. But I would say, well, humans haven't come up with an answer for the last couple of millennia, and there's no real likelihood they're going to come up with an answer in the next couple of millennia. And instead, we should think of ourselves as operating with models of the world which we can refine and improve in order to intervene, because that's what it's about. It's about being able to intervene. And we're not going to come to an answer. I, I, I sympathize with this anti-realist view a lot. What we have are working, useful fictions, narratives about what might be, and we can say the world behaves as though this were true, uh, but that doesn't mean that it is true. So I, I sympathize a lot with that, Hillary. But I also think that this demands from human beings an intellectual maturity that we don't have. And I'll start saying this from myself, not, uh, not, not about anybody else. I do not have the intellectual maturity to separate my models of reality from reality in the course of my day. Uh, we always end up with a metaphysical story, ultimately, that we believe in, we believe to be the actual truth. So I think at the cultural level, the best realistic thing we can hope for is that we adopt the least implausible story and pretend that it's really true and forget that it's a story. But I think today uh, we are adopting it the worst, the most implausible story. And therein lies the problem, I think. So I, I, mo I mostly agree with Bernardo, I would say. Um, and 
I, I'm trying to think of what I can add here. I there there are, there are different ways of of going about it. I think you know what what my interest is um, in and and what I've been spending a lot of time thinking about is um, the possibility that that consciousness is fundamental and how that might work. Um, and in terms of so, so I, I guess I can start speaking um, generally about AI. Um, I think it's very unlikely to be helpful in this area, but it's also very unlikely, um, you know, if if we're assuming that consciousness arises out of complex processing, which is is not, which is an assumption that many people make and most scientists make, which I, I think is is possibly a mistake. Um, then perhaps AI has something to say here, but I, I myself don't think it's about something complex necessarily or about um, intelligence necessarily either. And so um, AI, to the extent that it's replicating human behavior and intelligence, I'm not sure it, it says much at all about consciousness. Um, I think um, I also agree with Bernardo that that neuroscience will have a lot more to contribute here. Um, one, because if it's able to give some satisfying explanation for how the brain does give rise to consciousness, um, you know that, that that will be interesting. But I, to me, I see it more on the other side of are are weeding out false ideas. You know, the the way science usually progresses or always progresses. Um, is in, in putting forth ideas and then kind of knocking down the ones that don't work. And as I said, you know, I, I really think that the concept of subject and self and free will and, and all of these things that come into play that, that to me um, are, are, are convincingly co um, constructions of the brain that are actually illusions, that are not useful guides to what the fundamental nature of reality is. I think neuroscience will be very good at continuing to um, to give us evidence for, for that being the case and to give us a reason to move away from that, from, from thinking those ways and from using those types of concepts that we assume are fundamental, fundamental um, aspects of consciousness to be, able to, con to, to be able to be convinced to strip those away so that we can kind of get down to the work of what it would actually mean for consciousness to be fundamental um, w without these, these other things that I think are mis misleading us. Yeah. And, and the again, I think the question, Bernardo's question is whether we have the maturity to, to do that. Um, yeah. Well, actually, yeah, I was actually going to say too, so I thought that was a great point that he, that he ended on. Um, and I would just say that I think we're capable of the, the emotional maturity to kind of go with what seems the most plausible and know that tomorrow we might change our minds. The whole idea of intellectual maturity is a, is a, a, a scarecrow. If you are a philosopher and you are not believing in this intellectual maturity, then why are you in this business? The idea that thinking takes time is the very point of philosophy. And if you are going to pretend that as if uh, you are going to have your own version of intellectual maturity, then I have nothing to say here. First of all, I think Bernardo inflates the idea of consciousness to such epic proportion, then he tries to say that such and such approaches 
are not going to give us any sort of realization or recognition as what consciousness is or what it is about or what it entails. That's a philosophical gerrymandering that usually scientists do rather than philosophers. So that's my first objection. Second, I would say that um, I actually like Hillary's idea that, look, these are models. Yes, we are supposed to be modest about models because models are historical objects and artifacts. And of course, but, but, but then Hillary also says that, well, you know, um, these are models are not linguistic in that sense, but yes, models are linguistic and logical and computational. Otherwise there cannot be models really, because essentially the structure of a model as we know it requires a certain kind of verification by the environment, by the construction, by the constraints of reality, so to speak. And then also we need to have this structure indexed by the resources of language and logic. But I do, yes, I, if uh, I think that we can, Hillary and I can actually agree on this, that yes, these are models. And hence, um, treat them with caution. You know, these are not really statements about reality. These are models. Sometimes they are even counterfactual fictions as we know it, right? Uh, second, uh, third, uh, fundamental nature of reality uh, is a very hazy question, uh, the one that Anaka brought in, fundamental nature of reality or fundamental nature of consciousness. What is it about reality? What actually are we calling reality? All right, so let's throw this one out at, at, at Bernardo, actually. Bernardo, if we've, if we've got a more mature understanding, a, a kind of provisional understanding of, uh, of subjectivity, what do we do with our, our concept of the world? How are we supposed to be viewing what the world is? I think, and this may come across as arrogant, but it's not meant as such uh, at all. I think things are not even nearly as complicated as we make them out to be. I think we are so lost in conceptual abstraction that we are losing sight of the primary data of existence that is presented to us repeatedly every single day. I think we've made two mistakes uh, in this point of our civilization. And it's very hard for us to see them because we are inserted in the paradigm, the Kuhnian paradigm. And although we think we understood Kuhn, very few people, I think, actually understand what, what he was trying to hint at. And we don't, we are unable to observe our own mental activity from outside the paradigm. And that's why we don't see these two very simple things, which I think I would say now, and 99.9% of the people listening to this will not hear. Um, one is, um, we have mistaken the territory, sorry, we've, we've mistaken the map for the territory. We found out that we can describe the world with quantities. Um, it's very handy. There is no denying that. It's very handy to assign a, assign a number to weight, to mass, to speed, to direction. Uh, but at some point, we replaced the world with its description. We said the thing that we described in the first place is epiphenomenal. It doesn't really exist. What really exists is the description. 
In other words, we are trying to pull the territory out of the map, and we call it the hard problem of consciousness, and we think it's a problem to be solved, as opposed to the reduction to absurdity of our uh, starting metaphysical assumptions. Um, I find that painful. Um, it, it would be funny if it were not uh, tragic. The other mistake we made is we take appearances for the thing in itself. And that is despite over 200 years since Kant and Schopenhauer. Um, we think that the world is the, that we see the images of the world, the way the thing in itself, the world in itself presents itself to our observation. We think those appearances are the world. And therefore, we think the appearances are shallow and hollow. There's nothing behind them. It's like going to a cinema, watching the movie and saying the movie exists, but the projector doesn't. There is nothing behind the images. The images have a standalone autonomous reality, even though quantum physics over the last 20 years has basically you know, taken this idea uh, off the table, unless you believe in the fairy tale of uh, multiple universes. Um, so now we, we are now dealing with these two fundamental, not, not nuanced, not difficult to see errors. We replace the territory with the map and we take the appearances to be the thing in itself. If we finally manage to see through it, which is easy, because when you look at yourself in the mirror, you know that behind that appearance, there is your inner life. If you see yourself crying in front of the mirror, you know that behind that crying, there is the feeling of sadness, of sorrow, of despair. You know the thing in itself when it comes to you. But we try to abstract the thing in itself away, and we say that all that exists are hollow, flat appearances. And then we, we face all kinds of things that we call problems, as opposed to the implications of the silliness of our starting assumptions. Um, I, I think eventually we will see through that, maybe in 50 years, and, uh, and our uh, descendants will look back at us with a smile, uh, um, not a the derisive smile, but a, a, a smile of puzzlement. How could that um, have ever happened in the history of human thought? <laughs> Hillary, would you say that you're internal to this problem or external to it? Right? Are, are, is, is, there, is there a territory behind the map? Is there a person behind the mirror? How, how, does, how, does your, how would you say that your theory fits with what Bernardo has just been offering us? Well, I found it interesting when he was saying previously that um, his proposal was, in a word, a speculative suggestion of how we might uh, how we might think. So instead of taking up an idealist position, it's a sort of speculative idealist position. This is a good strategy. I, I quite like that uh, thought. It's a good strategy, and, and and I think we are looking for good strategies, and every strategy will fail. The nature of all closures is they're not the same as openness. There's always an infinite gap. We're never going to get there. We're always going to find errors in whatever closure we have. So if I say to you, if I hold up this and I say, well, you know, what, 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 what is this? Is it a glass? Is it a collection of silicon atoms? Is it a container? Is it an example in a talk? Is it potentially a weapon? Well, it's all of those things. And let's not imagine that there's there's one you know, correct answer that we could somehow say, oh, we know what it really ultimately is. And consciousness and subject object are just like that. They're a way of holding this stuff around us. 
and we can use them to have outcomes. So, of course, if we hold this as a collection of silicon atoms, we can ask other questions. Well, how are they laid out? How does it change the character of the glass? If we hold it as a weapon, we can say, well, how effective is it? The way that we hold the world changes how we can intervene. But we've just got to give up this idea that we're going to get to the bottom line. So we're going to actually find the right answer. Uh, that, 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 that is, I think, a, a, a dangerous path. It results in people being at loggerheads all the time, always trying to say, well, I'm the only one that's right. Instead of saying, look, try it like this, you can see some advantage. And of course, we make choices. We make sure, well, we don't quite like that way of holding it. It doesn't seem to work. It doesn't have effectiveness. But we just need to give up this idea that we are, are, are going to crack it. Annika, will you bring us home, please? The question is, if we're trying to think differently from conventional ways about the distinction between, say, this subject and the object or the thinker and the world about which mm. the thinker is thinking, mm -hmm. um, and if it's possible that, say, AI or perhaps neuroscience or both or neither, right, might give us a more sophisticated understanding of uh, the process of thinking itself, um, how might we think, and, and you've said, in fact, that meditation can allow the subject to think differently about what a subject is and in, perhaps not experience subjectivity at all and realize that subjectivity is, a, is, an, is an illusion. What then is the world, right? If subjectivity, at least in your understanding, mm. is what's the world that is being... Yeah, I mean, I guess, um, again, I, I think Bernardo and I have, have very similar views. They're, they're, they're very close in that um, I think it's, it's more likely than not that consciousness is fundamental and that um, phenomenal experience is fundamental and that this way of trying to understand the world from um, a, material, a materialist point of view, a materialist um, way of doing science, although I, I you know, depending on how you define materialist, I, I can even include my view in, in, in materialism. I mean, it, it just changes what the way we relate to what we typically talk of, uh, uh, talk about as, you know, objects in the world that we perceive. Um, but yes, no, I think, I think our view of what the world is, what the universe is, um, is, as, as long as we keep living and, and moving forward and, and <laughs> discovering more, I, I think it will continue to shift. And I believe it, we will kind of be pushed in, in this direction. Um, and I hope that we are because, you know, I, I believe that this is closer to the truth. And I, um, while I, I sympathize with and understand um, the point that, that Hillary was making, I think there, there's still there's still a way in which we can work on this project of gaining a better understanding. And I think um, we can talk about the glass as, as all of the thing, all of the different ways we can talk about it. But if you tell me the glass is a butterfly, um, you know, then there's a conversation <laughs> to be had. And all of those other ways of describing the glass can be, you know, fit within, you know, my, my rationalist view of what's going on. And um, so, so I do, you know, along those lines, I think, there is obviously much more for us to understand. I think there are probably likely limits to what the human mind is capable of understanding. And I think it may be that we just reach a point where we have to throw our hands up and say, 
you know, maybe. <laughs> um, and right. consciousness, conscious experience seem, seems to point us in that direction. It's, it's hard to imagine how, how we could actually understand um, in, a, in any complete way. Well, on this solid maybe, um, I'd like to thank <laughs> our speakers so much um, for your time, for your energy. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers. 